I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for business, for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Pushkin. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by actor Oscar Isaac. You've likely seen him in films like A Most Violent Year, Ex Machina, The Card Counter, and Dune. Or maybe you've seen him on television in shows like Moon Knight or Scenes from a Marriage, for which he was recently nominated for an Emmy. But before this remarkable run, Isaac was a young, hustling actor in New York City trying to make a name for himself. As he joked during his recent SNL monologue, I'm half Guatemalan, half Cuban, or as casting directors call that, ethnically ambiguous. So it's no surprise then that Isaac's first leading man opportunity came from a pair of filmmakers who've built a career just outside the mainstream Hollywood system. It was in 2013 that brothers Joel and Ethan Cohen hired Isaac to play the titular character of Inside Lewin Davis. The film, set in Greenwich Village, circa 1961, spans a week in the life of a talented but uncompromising folk singer who can't seem to get out of his own way. Isaac has recently returned to that same time and place, this time on stage, in a new production of The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, written by the late seminal playwright Lorraine Hansberry. Set in the apartment of couple Iris and Sidney Brewstein, Isaac plays what Hansberry once described as a nervous, ulcerated, banjo-making young man, and whom I see an embodiment 
of a certain kind of Greenwich Village intellectual. The show, which I happened to see while I was in New York, is really, really excellent. It's currently being mounted at the James Earl Jones Theater, where it will run until July 2nd. If you happen to be in the city before then, you can find tickets at thesignonbroadway.com. That's thesignonbroadway.com. We've also included more info about the play on our website at talkeasypod.com. You can also click that link in the description of this episode on your phone. As for today, with the Tony Awards later this evening, I wanted to talk to Oscar about making his Broadway debut with the prescient political writing of Lorraine Hansberry. We also get into his childhood in Florida, finding creativity early, his punk rock salad days in high school, then Juilliard, and how each of those eras shaped the heart and spirit of the work that followed. This is Oscar Isaac. Oscar Isaac. Hi, Sam. Pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. How are you feeling? Right in this moment? Mm-hmm. A little bit warm, a little sweaty. I know you see me sweating. I don't actually see you sweating. Oh, yeah, it's cold. Oh, I see a little bit on the hairline there. Thanks for noticing. You're welcome. <laughs> and, you know, voice is a little, little raggedy. You been busy, or? I've been a little busy. I've been using it a lot. Four weeks left of this uh, run on Broadway. We'll have done this show for six months now. You started doing the show back in February, right at BAM? Yeah. So we're sitting maybe less than a mile away from the James Earl Jones Theater. Mm -hmm. You're at the tail end of what's been a great run. Mm. Mentally, how are you doing? It's taken on a liturgical quality. No, I didn't have that word written down. (laughs) Nope. Um, It's like public worship. It's very ritualized at this point. It's unlike any experience I've ever had. It's the longest I've ever done anything. You know, I've done every moment of the three-hour play badly for myself. I've done every moment well, you know, as I make air quotes. And so, and not to say that I can't be surprised. I am surprised every night by things. But in a way, it's like my own motivations, my own personal wants and desires for what doing a play and doing this part and what I want it to be. I've experienced those all. So now it's really just the doing in a kind of disinterested way, but not uninterested, but disinterested, meaning that my own personal things aren't as necessary as just the getting up and the ritual of doing it with faith in the author and the, in the, in the play itself. But it's a, it's a weird process. It's, it's humbling, you know, to kind of surrender to it. Well, I want to get into the things that got you into this play in the first place, mm-hmm. as distant as they may seem now, because the play is written by the late, great Lorraine Hansberry. It was the last production she mounted on Broadway before passing away in 1965. Since then, it's been pretty infrequently revisited. But when you first discovered the play, you said that you felt a profound freedom reading it. A lot of the things she talks about, our place in the world as artists, as human beings, and as activists, spoke to me. It was like an exorcising of a lot of fear and demons and shame. So specific to this production, what are or were those fears and demons that you were trying to expel through this performance? Hmm. 
I think it's about, you know, there's something about the idea of public transgression. There's something about saying the wrong things in search of the right thing, uh, which there isn't a whole lot of room nowadays to do. And I think art and the theater is a place where that is still possible, although it takes doing a play from 60 years ago to be able to really feel like speaking the unspeakable, saying the unsayable, doing the thing that one shouldn't do. There's a real catharsis in doing that publicly for a greater good, to understand something deeper. And I think there was just something about this character who says very misogynistic things, blindly racist things sometimes. You see him at his smallest, but also you see him, a human, at their most expansive as well, all in the course of the play. And, and I think that that's true for all of the characters. And it's really unusual. It's unusual to read a play like that or read a play that that's, that's that bold, hard on its sleeve. Maybe because she knew the end was near, just needed to get it all out there, every last thing that she wanted to get out there and put it in a play and find the way that it would be the most provocative in some ways, too. And there's just something that feels really invigorating about performing that. The play really does have that. And one more thing kind of quality to mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm leaving the party. I know the end is near. Mm -hmm. She would end up dying of pancreatic cancer, I think, at the age of 34. And it does seem like she's getting a lot off her chest. I'm curious about the first thing you said, which was, it takes a play from the 60s to talk about the present. Mm. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that this kind of unbridled fearlessness with which she approaches incredibly sensitive topics, and especially right now in our time, you know, things that we are, we're grappling with, but also grappling with how to talk about them. You know, and I think there's a lot of fear about saying the wrong thing, about being dismissed, about being ostracized. Is that something you fear? Me, not as much, because I don't operate personally in the public sphere so much, if that makes sense. You know, like I try to like, I do my job and I go home and I'm with my family. But with as much connection and as much availability to say whatever you want and get it out there, there's a lot more fear with that about saying the wrong thing about me being misconstrued and then also knowing that the algorithm is such that it feeds negative bias that we don't actually have already, right? Which is like, you know, you, you focus in on the negative stuff, not so much the positive stuff. So I think because of that, that world that we're living in, this kind of unbridled intercourse with these kinds of subjects is much, much more rare. And things tend to toe a very clear line generally, whether it be on the right or the left or whatever it is. And what she does in this play, you know, she is a total activist and a Marxist to a certain extent. She's a black queer woman writing in 64, which is like the most antagonistic time for a, you know, a black queer woman to be writing, especially for Broadway. And yet there is such kind of bold-faced courage in standing up. And I remember I read, um, I read a transcript of an interview for 60 Minutes that never aired that she did with Mike Wallace. Mm -hmm. And it is one of the most infuriating, condescending, misogynist, racist things that you could possibly... And to, to have her just stand there and parry everything that he says and not fall into his traps. And no, no wonder it never aired. You know, she makes him look like, a, like an idiot. Well, that sounds exactly like Mike Wallace, so... Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, 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 it's a harrowing thing to read. You can't even believe it. You know, when the play came out, Hansberry wrote in the New York Times in October of 64, she wrote that she, and by extension the play, became obsessed 
with the problem of political commitment in general, the problem being our constant need to label those commitments and allegiances. Well, that's what it is. I remember growing up as well, you know, it's like it was so much about don't label me. I don't, I'm, you know, I don't want to be labeled by you, tearing off any kind of labels. And it feels like now it's kind of gone full circle. And now it's very much about the label and the right label and making sure that we're all easily, quickly identifiable. I was so close to saying, right, you're from Gen X. Like, oh, <laughs> exactly. Don't label me, man. <laughs> Can the label be accurate and also a joke? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is. Look, it's, but it's just one of many things. And the, I think the big thing about this, again, with this play too, and these people is that they're kind of self-labeling as well and how those labels just kind of fall apart because it's change the only constant, right? Things are constantly shifting and morphing and changing. And the person he thinks is in front of him is changing right before his eyes, even if she, he doesn't want her to. Every character is just shifting and morphing. And and I think that's why labels are kind of can be so ridiculous because, they, you know, as soon as you label something, it's already shifting before your eyes. This resistance towards labels, I think dates back for you to the early 1980s, where you grew up in a nomadic, religious household that you've said had a real sense of impending doom, that the apocalypse was coming and that we were going to get left behind. Tough. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> As a young boy, did that kind of doom and gloom, did it push you closer to religion or did it push you further away from it? That's an interesting question. It wasn't the doom and gloom that pushed me away. I think, if anything, that was more a source of interest. You know, I was obsessed with like, the Book of Revelation, so psychedelic, too, you know, like beasts with nine heads and, you know, all sorts of crazy shit. So that stuff was kind of fun and comic booky. What pushed me away was just the hypocrisy, like the clear, clear hypocrisy of it all. And it's funny because, like, my sister became a climate scientist, mm -hmm. you know, so she is, that's what she is. And so it's like very much like she was being prepared for end of days. <laughs> she found a real use for that uh, <laughs> impending doom feeling. And I think there's impending doom in all the stuff that I do as well. There's some sense of, I think that's what I connect to the most, even in this play, is not so much the, you know, the political aspect of it, of course, but it, it's more the primordial elemental aspects of it that really get to me. As someone who's been uh, diving back into your work the last week, there's definitely a thread. What do you think that thread is? Well, we're going to get into it. Because in 1992, you're like 12, 13 years old. You start writing plays and short stories. I think some of those plays would turn into musicals <laughs> at school, which you kept inside a small desk at your home in Florida. Mm -hmm. A home that like months later would be destroyed by this, this Hurricane Andrew. When you play that day back in your head, like hunching beneath the sofa cushions with your brother and, and sister. What does that look like? Well, the the actual hurricane itself, it was exciting and kind of fun. I had my little pug with me. Did the pug think it was exciting? I think the pug was pretty chill the whole time, really, surprisingly. No chance. I mean, I remember him as being pretty chill <laughs> and just hanging out with me underneath these cushions. I think you blacked out. As the water was coming up. I don't remember actually ever feeling really afraid. I think there was just something that just felt so surreal about it that 
it didn't register to me until we left, until my or my dad like broke through the doors and like came through after the whole thing was done. And we, we were walking, you know, running through the, the neighborhood and it looked like an atom bomb had hit it. That's when I think the severity of what had happened was. And then the days after were the real bummer because there was no light. There was flooding everywhere. And I had to stay at my grandma's by myself for some reason because I think my dad in, in his haste and also him and my mom were not speaking so much. And so she left to Guatemala and took my sister and my brother, and then suddenly I was alone with my grandma with no electricity in the house. It just was like days of extreme boredom. Did you lose all the the stories that you wrote? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Do you remember that? Yeah, I still remember. I can see the, the desk, and I can remember where I put my, you know, mockingbird and cuckoo bird story and where the Noah's Ark story was, and yeah. I did have a video for a while. I don't think I, I don't have it anymore, but I had a video for a long while of the play when we actually performed it. So I did have a bit of a record of it. How was it? Uh, it was pretty funny. It was pretty good. I mean, you know, there was some some compromises had to be made. You know, I, you know, I, I wanted a male and female platypus, and it could only be a male platypus and a and a cat. But I guess they could mate as well. Compromise. Yeah, there was a there was an artistic compromise there. You know, at a young formative age like that. Did going through that event, did it kind of um, awaken some kind of sense of impermanence? I think I've thought about that a lot, actually. Not only that event itself, but having, you know, moving so much. I think dealing with missing a place and nostalgia at a very young age, you know, it's like, you know, how, what's a six-year-old being nostalgic about? <laughs> For being five. Yeah, exactly. Well, now now as a, as a dad, I can see it. I see it, you know. But I remember just I had dreams for years of my house where I would just be moving through my house and the house that got blown down and seeing the areas and, you know, remembering what the carpet was like and the cushions and the way that the light would go through the trees in the back and and really longing for this place because also it was the last time that my family was all together because that's where my mom and dad lived before the divorce happened. It definitely was this symbol of this kind of long lost thing that was completely gone. And I remember when my mom and I first found that house because we went there together and it was one of the model houses. So it had all the kind of fake furniture. Country in Walk or something? It was like in Country Walk, yeah. And it was actually right outside of Country Walk called King's Grant right next to it. It had like a truck bunk bed. And that's where I was like, Mom, we have to live here. And we got to keep the truck bunk bed. The fact that it's a model home, <laughs> given where your family had come from, yeah. that's all like torn asunder. Yeah. On the other side of that, in, in the fallout, as you turn into like a punk rock teenage high schooler, how did you make sense of that time? You know, the, once we got back, we were out in Guatemala for a bit, and then we came back and... I remember we drove up with my sister and my little brother. And my, we were driving up through Delray Beach, and my mom had found this little house there. And it was the most magical time with a little pug as well. He was up there, Bugsy. And I would just go to the beach all the time, and I, it was my first time. Both my sister and I rebelled. The first day, she put us in a private school, and we came home, we're like, and we just protested. We're like, we're not going back. And so I got to go for the first time to a public school. And it was a pretty rough public school, and I fucking loved it. I loved it. I loved being there. I loved, like, the freedom of all the different people. Did she like that you loved it? She didn't love that I loved it. And she was very much about trying to make sure that I didn't get and fall into the wrong, you know, crowds and all that. And but I think my anti-label thing 
which started quite early and, and that maybe had some roots in kind of religious ideology where it's like, you know, you are not of this world. You're kind of passing through. There's a sense of like finding my individuality within that. So, you know, I had long hair and kind of dressed like a skater, but hung out with all like the Mexican and black kids, you know, and was kind of an arts guy, but also was running around, you know, doing other other weird stuff as well. And so I kind of just floated around on the sides and then ended up moving to go to high school a little further up. And when I was there, I first gravitated towards art school and I was learning to play guitar and I and it was obvious that I should audition as an actor for because I was already doing acting and stuff, but I refused and I wanted to audition for classical guitar, which I didn't really know how to play. <laughs> and I still remember learning this one piece and like going in and sitting in front of the like the classical teachers, the faculty, and just like halfway through the piece, just I've never been good at reading music and it's kind of mathematical. And so I just lost my place and I just started kind of improvising <laughs> and it was really bad. And of course I didn't get in. I thought the plot twist was going to be, and I was really good. No, I was terrible. <laughs> and so they, they invited me not to come. And so I ended up going to just regular old you know, public high school and then getting into the drama program for a little bit. Um, and then that kind of fell apart for me. And I just moved into doing music instead and just found bands and found people that I played music with and made some really good friends that I'm still friends with. Well, so in between playing in bands and making uh, Taxi Driver-inspired short films in your friend's Honda, you uh, have a yearbook quote that reads, I like to be different and I'm into the arts. When you look at me, you can tell. <laughs> Hey man, at least I knew. At least I knew myself. You know, <laughs> the, the thing is, when you look at me, you can tell. It's at once like <laughs> earnest and arrogant and sweet and self-deprecating as well. You know, I mean, I was like rail thin with very long hair. Uh, <laughs> a friend of mine from high school came to see the play not too long ago, and she showed me a thing that I had written in her yearbook that she had made. <laughs> What did it say? It was like, um, keep this, I'm going to be famous one day, and now I have to go make love to the sky. You weren't doing drugs in high school when you wrote that? I wasn't. Unbelievable. Yeah. That was just, that was from within. That was just, that was just from within. That was just my <laughs> natural uh, inclination to be a weirdo. I love that. It reminds me of your, your monologue on SNL that I think so many people heard and were like, oh, right, it's okay if... I'm a little left of center. Yeah. And, yeah. and the fact that you knew that at such a young age, mm. did you really believe that thing you wrote in your friend's yearbook? Yeah. There was someone else that had shown me that I had written that in someone else's yearbook. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we couldn't even... I was a terror man. <laughs> See, if you did it once, then we could write it off. Yeah, yeah, but no. You this was a repeat offender. I was a repeat offender of this. Okay. I'm going to be famous one day thing. Now that you're a father and you're, I'm sure, thinking about... You know, like being a dad, but also young kids and your own time being a young kid. How would you describe yourself back then at that age, at the end of high school before you, you go off to college? I was very wounded just from like a really kind of chaotic family life. I mean, loving family, but just like all over the place and a bit torn between kind of being hungry for life and experience and also feeling a deep responsibility about being a moral person and doing the right thing. What does that mean exactly? Not going off and leaving the family and uh, going crazy and doing drugs and partying and drinking and, and like, 
dating lots of girls and all this different, you know, there, there was like a still a, kind of a moral streak. There was a little bit of a kind of a straight edge thing that I had, that had become a bit of my identity that like I was all in all these bands, but I, and I would hang out with everybody like high as fuck, but I just wouldn't be a part of it. And I wouldn't judge either. I'd be like having fun, but it just was like, oh no, that's not my thing. I, my thing is I don't do that. You wanted one foot in. Yeah. But still one foot out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of my life is always just kind of one foot in, one foot out. I was always on the outside feeling like I was just kind of observing it, kind of participating, but always being aware of that, not really. And so I think that led to a, a lot of conflict about not ever really committing one way or the other to anything, mm. except for, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to, I want to make movies. I want to perform. I want to make music and act. And like it, that was just like... A, and I was doing it. And every day, especially out of high school, I was every day I would wake up and be like, what is one thing I can do to further that goal? Yeah, this quote about this kind of like ping-ponging back and forth. I always felt like I was observing life and not actually experiencing it. There was a lot of guilt with that sometimes, feeling like I was a vulture of my own life. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? What did that look like? Like I'd be having a fight with my girlfriend and then part of me would be like, oh, that's good. That's good. You see, you see how you act like that? You see, that's what you'd normally do if you were in that situation. That's, that's the, the one where you wanted to laugh, but you couldn't? Yeah, yeah, or laugh, yes. Or like, yeah, find something funny, but like obviously it's, it shouldn't, it's not a funny situation, but on the outside looking at it, I could see how that would be a funny thing, you know? And so there'd be, a, yeah, there'd be a lot of feeling of, of like, wh why do I do that? That's so fucked up. That's a little bit, I feel like a sociopath a little bit because like I'm not really in it. And eventually ended up feeling like understanding that I think it's that feeling that moved me or made it easier to become an artist mm. because I had that and not to feel so guilty about it, you know, not to feel like I'm an artist and now I'm going to figure out how to use up my own life in order to fuel the art. You know, it was like, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg kind of thing. And so I think that feeling of being on the outside, I still remember in kindergarten and I see my son now, how young that was. I was like in kindergarten pretending to have gotten beaten up by a kid who just like said something mean to me, but I pretended because it was a little closer to the Karate Kid movie that I had just seen. And so I wanted it to be like that that had actually happened. And I was like, I remember laying on the floor and like being like, like squinting my eyes to see if Mr. Miyagi would come. <laughs> but also being aware that I was full of shit, you know? Now that you're like some years removed from that, why did you do that? Well, I, yeah, I know I don't have an answer. I don't know why I was more inclined towards that kind of fantasy way of being. My father was very artistic and always had movies around. I always would bring movies. He was a big, you know, every Friday night he would come with like a brown case with a Betamax in it, a new different movie. So that was like a huge part of growing up and connection and excitement. So I think maybe and as that marriage fractured, there was probably, a, it was a source of connection. And it's funny because these last couple of years, I'd say the last year really has been about letting go of that and actually falling through the void into living in the world and committing to being here and not just observing it anymore. You know, that's been a really interesting way and also interesting in how it affects the work. So when you were starting to figure out what the work looked like, that was 2001-ish. You moved from Florida to New York City. Mm -hmm. You decide to enroll at Juilliard. Mm -hmm. Of that time, I was trying to make sense of the kind of person or actor you were, and I, and I found something from uh, a classmate of yours. She's a good actor. I mean, you know, people have heard of her. Her name is Jessica Chastain, and she described you as a bit of a troublemaker. 
He was very mischievous, she said. I would tease him a lot because he would behave badly and I would take him to task for it. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's all true. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I have a, I, I, there's a rebellious streak in me. I, I don't know. It, there's just something that's just that wants to go against yeah. the thing. And, and it's, it's like an uncontrollable itch that suddenly overtakes me mm-hmm. and that creates some form of like rebellion in the moment, which is kind of what happens. It's less about like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the bad boy. I'm going to go do some bad stuff because I want to misbehave. Like, that's definitely not my thing and never has been. <laughs> yeah, that, that wasn't in my notes. Yet. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's more of like in the spot, just like has to say the wrong thing or, or, or be the contrarian or, you know, there's just something in there that just kind of rebels in the moment. I think that's why doing this play feels so good because there's something about her, Lorraine Hansberry, as a nonconformist, as an anti-establishment person, as a provocateur who doesn't want to be labeled. I melded with it as difficult as it's challenging and impossible. It's an impossible role. But I think that spirit is the thing that really hooks me. Um, and all of this life that we're talking about, to me, is in that character. It's in that performance. And how you got there how you got to this play is so fascinating because when you leave school, the text that you keep returning to, as I understand it, is Al Pacino and Dog Day Afternoon. (laughs) What did that performance mean to you as a young actor? It was a combination of the intimacy that he's able to generate. There's almost like a clown thing that's happening with him in that movie as well. Like, he's behind a nose a little bit. There's a real openness to his face. There's a vulnerability, the way that he that emotions kind of crackle across his face without him being aware of. It's that lack of awareness, lack of self-awareness that really feels like it comes... It reminds me of watching a child actor, mm-hmm. that movie. Like, uh, I remember Keisha Castle-Hughes in The Whale Rider. You know, when you just see a child actor, that they're, they're just not aware that there's even a camera around. And somehow... Pacino in that movie really gives me the sense that he is somehow it's just happening for real. There's also a desperation. Yeah. In the, that the, 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 the trying to grab a greased pole, that thing. And then the surprise, the, the lack of being able to label what he is and, you know, and the way that he's playing with both comedy and tragedy intertwined at any given moment. Yeah, that moved me a lot. In the years leading to Inside Lewin Davis in 2013, Did some part of you, as like a struggling, young, working actor in New York, did some part of you see yourself in Pacino's desperation? Was some part of your time before Lou and Davis marked by that desire to arrive at some place? I mean, there was a lot of hunger and a willingness to sacrifice anything. What did that look like? It looked like me willing to go anywhere for however long amount of time, regardless of the relationship that I happen to be in at the moment, you know, that I was also still kind of struggling between wanting to build like a stable family life and just being an artist and going wherever it would take me, you know, following the advice of others that, you know, as far as career and what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do it and the way that it's done and all this kind of stuff, you know, so just being kind of willing to follow that where it would take me other than L.A., (laughs) I mean, I have my boundaries, he says while he stares at me, <laughs> knowing damn well that I have to go back there tonight. <laughs> no, you know what? I really like L.A. I just don't like myself in L.A. <laughs> what happens? In the past, 
maybe now it'd be different, but I just I think I find myself getting a little too neurotic and compare and despair, that kind of whole thing. And everything is that kind of so saturated in that, that it's hard to kind of look away. And I'm, obviously there's wonderful pockets of artists out there and people that have really good circles of friends, but I never put the time in. <laughs> we'll welcome you at any time when you, when you decide. Thanks. When you do finally land the dream role of Lewin Davis, the serendipity of that piece, what it demanded of you, mm-hmm. that it asked you to basically use all the life that came before it. Did it feel predestined? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know about predestined, but I think that it was, it was one of those kind of tipping point things that happened. And yes, the serendipity and the incredible synchronicity of even five months prior to the audition, doing a movie and having a lot of downtime. And in that downtime, I just decided to go play open mics. It was in Pittsburgh, and I was just kind of doing open mics and met some musicians and would play, just sort of playing a lot without even being aware that this audition was coming up, you know, that would require playing. And and so that kind of synchronicity that happened was astounding and incredible. And And yeah, it's still sometimes I get afraid that it didn't happen. <laughs> suddenly just get like, I'm like, no, no, that did happen, right? It happened. Yes, it happened. happened. Okay. Is that true? You really do feel that way? Sometimes. Even just like, yeah, you're just saying about it. Like, like I don't want to talk about it too much in case it's like, it all is, is not true. <laughs> you know, unless like HBO is like going to scrub it off, I think. <laughs> Which could happen. You yeah, never know. It's been more and more these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, in many ways that makes sense because when you revisit the movie, and I, I just did, it really feels like a kind of miracle. The forces that came together to make it, the collaborators involved, you being entrusted to hold this movie, and you do so so beautifully. I wonder, like, in the years to follow, did you realize only later that that was an anomaly in some ways, that no, it was a rare no. experience? I knew from the moment it was moving in my direction. And yeah, how unlikely regardless of what it would mean afterwards, just the actual thing itself, it is also quite provocative what it does to an audience. And it's and it's not aspirational. And, you know, this country loves an aspirational story. And this is very not that. It's the anti-aspirational story. <laughs> and that's what's so fucking great about it and I love about it. And, and it's also... Is that going to be the title of your memoir? By the way? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The anti-aspirational story. Um, Three copies. <laughs> yeah, I'm not aspiring anything more. Your brother, your sister. <laughs> I guess me. Fuck yeah, it. You can have one. You can have mine. <laughs> you don't even want your own. I don't need mine. I don't need one. Oh my lord. Uh, why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we'll uh, talk a little bit more to my guest, Oscar Isaac. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards, and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices, 
Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism, fascinating topics, words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. We were talking earlier about the thread and the through line of these characters in some of these films, and especially with this new play. There is a trend of playing these like abrasive idealists. I'm thinking about Ex Machina, A Most Violent Year, and that HBO miniseries, Show Me a Hero. But I want to say with 2017, within a span of five months, you have a, a collection of events that is a lot to hold. Mm. Like your mother passes away, the child is born, you get married, and you take on the role of, of Hamlet, a role that you took in honor of your late mother who loved Shakespeare. And around that production, I think you did it at the public, right? Mm -hmm. You did this interview, and there's a passage I've just been turning over in my head for like the last week where you said, it felt really good to have something like Hamlet to pour all that grief into, and then also hope at the same time. You know, it's a funnel, and acting has always been where I go to understand things about life and the things that are happening to me. But it's one thing to grieve as a character and one thing to grieve as an actual, you know, person. In the six years since then, how have you made sense of both, like, the grief and the joy of that moment? 
Have you been able to experience them as a person? Yes. Yeah. You know, it was uh, the grieving publicly felt more like um, a funeral for her that I would hold. You know, it was three months or whatever it was of doing that play. But also I was a wreck of a person. I would come home and I was just, you know, I was on steroids because my voice went. I, I was like a non-entity and then pretty stupidly like right into it because I was in this mode of like, well, I got to do what they tell me. I have to do this movie that I had said I was going to go do. Like I went right into another movie and, you know, it's like just wore myself totally out by just continuing this cycle as opposed to like stopping and saying, I'm also a human being that needs to do things as a human being and to be a human animal and to actually grieve. So, you know, I'm things that I'm still dealing with that I felt like I probably just compartmentalized at the time to be able to do it and get through all those kind of events happening one at a time and the, the just the pure adrenaline of what that moment was like. I took almost two years off before doing this play from acting. And that was a really important thing to kind of find find that uh, equilibrium again and to to find a new way of being in the world after kind of going through so much and then kind of thinking that that I could just kind of keep going in the same way. On the other side of that, what does that new way look like? It's interesting. The thing that keeps popping up in my head, not to name drop, but my dear friend Jeremy Strong, we've been talking a lot about theater and he's going to go do this play and we have people and, and just, you know, I've been kind of talking to him a lot about what this process has been like because it's been a bit since he was on, on stage too. And he sent me this beautiful C.S. Lewis piece, this quote, I guess it is, or a poem. The last thing it says is just remember these words, joy, patience, disinterestedness. And that's that's how you approach a sacrifice, right? You're like whether the God enters into it, it's not up to you. You just have to know that that's part. Of, that's that's the ritual, and just approach it with those three things. And I feel like that named the thing that I've been cultivating. I think over the last year or so is like finding a way to approach the work, approach the process with patience, joy, and disinterestedness. That's why you use the word disinterested in the beginning of this conversation. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something that makes it about something bigger than yourself or my own motivations for Uh wanting to do something. You separate the self a bit. And I think that's what, you know, in middle age, that's a lot about, you know, like you recalibrating your relationship with the self and what that means and what that, what you need and how I can quiet that part of me down some more. That's good. Later tonight, you're going to do the thing you've been talking about, the joy, the patience, the uh, disinterestedness. And I know when you were performing Hamlet, you had this like pre-show ritual that included music, a candle being lit, and a picture of your mother that was in the dressing room. Before you go on stage tonight, what does that pre-show ritual look like? I still have my picture of my mom there. You do? Yeah, yeah. And I light a candle. Um, I also have my uncle, who, her brother, who died tragically in October, which was wild. It's like it's almost like every time I do a play, someone really close to me passes away beforehand. Um, and so I have a picture of both of them. And now also I've got pictures of my kids and my wife and I have people I love around there. And I listen to music and I, cha- I change it up what I listen to. What is it right now? 
I've been listening a lot since BAM, and it's one that's I listen to often. It's a playlist by my friend May Kalamawi, who is in Moon Knight as well. She does tea ceremonies, uh, and she just put this beautiful playlist together that, that is really calming. So, so often it's very calming music. It's funny because I know Rachel gets her energy way up. So like sometimes when I'll knock on her door before and she's like doing calisthenics and some aerobic dancing and Joan Baez and exactly what I do before the podcast. Of course, of course. I can, I can tell. That's why you were sweating a little bit. <laughs> and, uh, thanks, thanks for reminding people. Yeah, and, uh, and I do the opposite. I'm like everything's like very zen out and quiet and calm, just trying to kind of get everything balanced and the energy ready to go out there. So so it's all very calming the things I do backstage. When you find yourself on stage and it's going well, because you mentioned you've done it badly. Mm-hmm. You've done it well. Mm-hmm. I've intentionally done it badly. You have? Yeah. Did you tell ticket buyers that? No. No. <laughs> Why did you intentionally do it badly? Maybe it's not quite intentionally doing it badly. It's allowing for whatever is there. If nothing is there, allowing for that to be there as opposed to pushing right. something else. Allowing it to be like, oh, I don't actually feel like this. I, I need to make this a joke right now. And so things that are usually were usually jokes, let them fall flat a little bit. What happens? What happens if Sydney's not funny? What happens if it's all these reactions that I think that I'm supposed to do because that's what I've done all the time? What if, what if I don't do them? Mm. It's more of it's investigating that and seeing what's on the other side of that. I see. How do you think it went on Sunday? On Sunday, the first, I remember the first act feeling really good and feeling like it was really cooking. And then I remember the second act feeling more challenging physically and feel a little heavier, heavy-footed. That's what I remember. And then and then being okay. And then also, I remember a few times saying, it's okay for Sydney to be exhausted too. Be exhausted. You know, I was there. I hadn't seen the play. I think that's right. Yeah. But I felt that you and the rest of the cast completely landed the plane. Mm. And any part that may have felt heavy to you felt appropriate for the material mm. at that time. I think that's what I'm also finding, too. And that's what's, what can also be very humbling, is that it doesn't matter. It like actually doesn't really matter what I feel. <laughs> it, right. doesn't, it doesn't matter if I feel it was great. It doesn't matter if I feel it was bad. It doesn't matter if, the, the, you know, it's like, the play is bigger, and obviously, you know, Annie came and she has gave us notes from a matinee on Saturday, and, you know, there's things that clearly, you know, when this part moves quicker, something happens that's better, right? But in the bigger scheme, like, it, it's not about that, and it's not about me willing something into being and having this kind of responsibility for it being good or it being bad uh, at this point. I was saying, too, because it was like, th- there's something that's almost obsolete about the craft of having to do things, having to recite something over and over again, because you have devices that'll recite it automatically forever for you, right? At first, as an actor, experiencing something as honestly and as truthfully as possible. That's kind of it, right? You take it on, you make choices that are interesting and unique to you, and you experience it fully. But that's a part of it, and that that's a very small portion of what I mm-hmm. think I've found this whole process to be. And that's what I mean, that the liturgical thing, like this kind of like more religious thing, which is not even about your own personal pleasure. You know, it's like, you don't want your priest getting off while he's doing the, cat, you know, the, the whatever the Eucharist, right? Again, not on my bingo card. Give something bigger to the experience, you know? And I think that, that kind of surrendering to that, that's been like just unexpected and special. As we leave, when you're thinking about a time where you're in the work, 
you're in this play and, and you're experiencing it truthfully, honestly, at its best. Is there any part of you, maybe during the play or later at home at night or on your off day, that you're brought back to that Bible passage that your father would often cite to you as a kid, and then especially as a late teenager, when you decided to make a life out of acting, when you decided to do or try to do the work that you're now doing. You know that passage I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Do what's before you with all your might? Yeah, I, I, I thought as we leave, I, you would like to read it, because I think it's quite moving. Ecclesiastes, which is the best of the books of the Bible. <laughs> That's your power ranking? Yeah, that's my power. Ecclesiastes and Job, those two, you know, they're pretty close and they're both both pretty dark. Um, Ecclesiastes 9, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Amen. Um, it's funny because my dad, not even the first sentence, just the first part of the first sentence, which is, do what's before you with all your might. But the second part's like, because you're going to fucking die. <laughs> and when you're dead, you can't do anything. So do what's before you with all your might. It's, it's pretty funny. I mean, that's the that's some Cohen brothers right there. That's some Cohen's gallows humor right there. When I saw that that was a, a formative part of your childhood, I thought, you know, when you're a kid, you really needed the first line. Yeah. And I think now that you're a father, not a punk rock, anti-label kid <laughs> who knew he was going to be a movie star. <laughs> the rest of that passage feels, I don't know, like important to remember, important to hold as you continue to finish out this show. It's gratitude, right? I mean, that's what it's, that's what it is. It's about gratitude because working, planning, knowledge, wisdom, all those things that are available to you, to have gratitude for those things and the possibility of those things because where you're going... <laughs> There ain't none of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for showing me that. And sort of a brings me back to the impermanence part that you and I have been circling. Mm-hmm. What to do with that? Yeah. It feels like it connects to that, you know, patience and joy and disinterestedness. It's a similar, you know, it has a very balanced nature to it. Because, yeah, that first line can just feel like ambition, too, you know. Mm-hmm. But the why, the why is because you can die. <laughs> that's just that's an amazing thing. You know, you said only recently you've decided to like wade into the void. To join the living? <laughs> to join the living. <laughs> to wade into the void, I think you said earlier. Maybe. There's always a little bit of sense of like, I get the rope tied around me and I'm being like lowered into the cave by the tribe to go see what's down there. And then they got to pull me back up and I got to describe everything that I saw. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like this process this last year has been about like snipping the cord and allowing myself to experience it without this sense of I have to bring it back and do something with it. What does that feel like? It's frightening and it's uh, it can be a little lonely, feel a little scary that way. But I think that it also feels like evolution, it feels like change. It feels like like something new. 
the bleak interpretation of this passage, you know, everything slips away in time, that everything we make of this life dissolves in the end. And yet, I don't know, I'm sitting across from you right now, and I'm brought back to the performance I saw on Sunday. And I thought, well, you know, for three hours, you made meaning of that time and space. All of us were sitting there watching. And I think like, yes, it's impermanent. But I wrote this down. Yeah, when I watch a performance like yours, whether it's in this play or Inside Lewin Davis or any of the great work that you've done, I don't know, that, that feeling of impermanence falls away. I think as an audience, you stop playing the end hmm. a little bit. And so I hope that some consolation. That's beautiful. That's a really beautiful thing to share. I think of actually a line from the play that Sidney says, the why of why we are here is an intrigue for adolescence. The how is what commands the living. And I think that that's why, yeah, I don't know why, why it's impermanent, why, you know, but the, the how, it's like, well, while we're here, while you're, while you're here, you have a chance to do what's before you with all your might and to commit to things, I think. That's also the play is very much about continue to put yourself out there, continue to feel why, I don't know why. <laughs> what it'll do, who knows, probably will fail <laughs> as, as things tend to, but that's not a reason to not continue. You know, and, and again, like collapsing time is a beautiful thing. And that's something that art can do in such a beautiful way. And that's what Lorraine does when you, you know, interact with this and beautiful, these words and you hear them right now and they feel like, they feel the moment. Shakespeare does that too. You know, these incredible moments of space and time just <laughs> colliding together. You know, there's been four or five transcendent nights of like flow state of just like, I could, you know, like just grace happens. The God enters the sacrifice and the thing catches fire, you know? Like there's been those few moments and that alone is just so worth it as well. And then to know that doing the ritual every night is also worth it, mm -hmm. even without the, you know, God entering the thing. Well, maybe the sixth time <laughs> will happen tonight. Maybe, maybe tonight's the sixth. And uh, above all, I appreciate working through the how and why and everything in between and for the time. Oscar Isaac, a pleasure. Thanks, Sam. We did it. All right. Thanks, man. Was that all right? Yeah, it was great. Thank you. That's our show. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to leave us five stars on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. I want to give a special thanks this week to Marie Bashara, Jeremy O'Harris, the lead company, Stephen Toll, and of course, our guest, Oscar Isaac. 
His Tony-nominated Broadway show, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, is currently at the James Earl Jones Theater through July 2nd. To learn more, you can visit our website at talkeasypod.com. That's talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's talk, I'd recommend our conversations with other actors like Pedro Pascal, Tessa Thompson, Willem Dafoe, Michelle Williams, and Ethan Hawke. To hear those and more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to purchase one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy, or our vinyl record with writer Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at TalkEasyPod.com shop. That's TalkEasyPod.com shop. As always, Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Our research and production assistant is Paulina Suarez. Today's talk was edited by Caitlin Dryden and mixed by Andrew Vastola. It was taped at CityVox in New York City. Our assistant editors are Clarice Guevara and C.J. Mitchell. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Chris Shenoy. Photographs today are by Emma Mead. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks Thanks to Kaylin Ung. I'd also like to thank our team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Julia Barton, John Schnars, Carrie Brody, David Glover, Heather Fain, Eric Sandler, Jordan McMillan, Isabella Navarez, Tara Machado, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Justine Lang, Malcolm Gladwell, and Jacob Weisberg. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next week with a new episode. Until then, stay safe. And so on. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.